You're listening to Technically Divided, a multimedia experience produced by Hacker Valley Media and presented by Exonius that bridges the gaps in the biggest tech debates. I'm Chris Cochran, and I have spent my career asking the hard questions in technology and cybersecurity. And I'm Ron Eddings. I have spent most of my days building technical systems and solutions. But today, let's examine the main sides of one of the most polarizing topics yet. Is there a skills gap in cybersecurity? Some say it's a gap in our trained personnel. There's a gap in that, you know, the industry is growing faster and the need of professionals is growing faster than we're able to produce them with the skills that we need for them to be productive in our environments. While others claim that employers are to blame. The problems weren't a lack of talent. It it was a lot of self-inflicted wounds. That was really the focus of the TEDx talk was just, let's look at how our expectations are set for hiring and what we're doing as an industry that's actually creating this hiring disconnect. But maybe there's more than one gap to consider when we take a look at cybersecurity and the leaders within it. Like technical skills are actually the easiest skills to understand if people have them, which makes them the easiest to train. People think of non-technical or soft skills. I hate soft skills, but since everybody uses it, you know, I think of it as people and process skills. Those are really hard to teach and really hard to evaluate if people have them. And those are the ones we need more of. And you don't find them as much in security, but you find them everywhere else. This is Technically Divided, and we're tackling the question, is there a cybersecurity skills gap? Coming up after the jump. Great. So for the recording, could you state your full name and what you do? Deidre Diamond. I'm the founder and CEO of CyberSN and the founder of Secure Diversity. With more than 25 years of experience in technology staffing, Deidre's passion and purpose is to transform the way cybersecurity professionals approach the job hunt. When we first met up with Deidre to speak about the skills gap, she was certain that there wasn't just one gap, but there were multiple gaps. And she left us with a few ideas that we had yet to consider. I think the main reason there's gaps is that we don't have a community of, in corporate America that's willing to do succession planning. You know, we don't, we don't have those budgets. And I say corporate America because I'm speaking about the commercial space. They're not doing succession planning at least 90% of the market. And that's the problem. And that's a budget issue. Let's get to the meat of the matter. Is there a gap in the cybersecurity, either skills or personnel realm? Yeah. So the definition of gap can be looked at many ways. There's a gap in that, you know, the industry is growing faster and the need of professionals is growing faster than we're able to produce them with the skills that we need for them to be productive in our environments quickly. That gap exists. Partially that gap is because you know, age-old problem we've had, which is universities and organizations that are training individuals, not training them on exactly what the what the businesses need. It's also a gap that we're feeling because 
most of these cybersecurity roles take years to be skilled enough to help in the needs that these organizations have, which again comes back to the succession planning, lack of it. And so the industry is the newest industry, you know, we sort of have in what could be called tech or certainly in, in protection and, you know, data. It's growing. It's growing so fast that we're not keeping up, yes, but there's bigger things going on, i.e. the ability to take in people that don't have prior work experience. We all see it, the conversations all over social media, like how are there all these jobs when I can't get in? And that's because they're not, they don't have the experiences the companies need and the companies don't have succession planning. Succession planning by definition is that you're hiring more junior people slash new to the, you know, field or industry or what have you. I've been watching this for years and years and years. It's I've done everything from offering the services of, you know, staffing people that are new to cyber for free. <laughs> so, so it doesn't work. It's not the problem. That's not the problem. They don't have a way to make that person useful, train them and develop them. Right. I completely agree with that. It's funny because I did a poll and it had a tremendous response. But in the poll, the question is, does cybersecurity have a skills or personnel gap issue? 66% said yes. 13% said no. And then 20% said it's complicated and here's why. And they went on to explain what those different things are. One of the points that was brought up in the comments was that a lot of the skills gap comes from companies not knowing exactly what to ask for you. I'm sure you've seen the jokes about folks that have tried to get a job and they see a job wreck that's like entry level, but then they're asking for a CISSP and five years of experience. I think you're in a perfect position to really give a perspective about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'd laugh because I tell you, it hit me like a ton of bricks. When I founded CyberSN, I had no idea that employers didn't speak cybersecurity well enough to understand their own needs. I had no idea that I would run into that. Chatted with you about that. But on top of that, the employers themselves didn't know how to speak the language of cybersecurity. So I had to instantly, my brain went to, I must, I absolutely must build an application and that creates job descriptions with these employers so that I understand how to, you know, what we're looking for because the match was too costly. And so we did. And that was, you know, our internal application before it came our platform that's now, you know, international and, and servicing everybody. But that is literally a huge problem still today for so many employers. If you go look at the jobs they're posting, they don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And not only do they not make sense, they also are playing the SEO game to get their job found and all the broken digital things that are going on in terms of complicating job searching. It's great to hear your poll because I think that's exactly what it is. It's interesting, those that don't think there's a, a gap, I wonder more why. One of the points that was made about why there's no gap is that we aren't being creative enough in our sourcing. For instance, there are people that do library science that are incredible researchers and they might make great threat intelligence people. But 
that the folks that are looking for these roles are looking for folks that already have this particular experience or they have coding or things or random skills that may not even apply to the job role. Is that an avenue for us to either close this gap or completely get rid of it? Or are people just looking at this just being one aspect? Do we still really not have enough folks with these skill sets in order to fill these roles? And I would say, I get that. I get that argument because it's such a cluttered system. And yet these jobs are, we just, I mean, what company can be without security services, people, nobody. And yet most organizations have put off even dealing with it until very recently. And so the marketplace itself is barely come alive and we're short. Meaning like it amazes me how many organizations are hiring their first product security professionals and yet they're in the product space. And I mean, could be physical products, not just software and healthcare. It's, it's kind of scary knowing the stuff I know, <laughs> not even kind that it's very scary. So I can tell you there's definitely a shortage and there's absolutely a problem with matching and upskilling and looking at who's qualified uh, versus creating a job description that creates a persona of who the employer thinks is qualified. Yes, all of that is an absolute broken mess, which is why I've built everything that I've built is to organize this chaos and provide a solution. And it's a process. You're talking about the entire system. I completely agree with that. One thing that I think about is that as we're going through these digital transformations, a lot of folks are going to the cloud. Some cybersecurity teams are changing to be more engineering focused. That's what caused me to think that there might be a technical skills gap right now because there's a lot of new technology that people don't have experience with. Is that something that you're seeing in your day-to-day? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It takes, on average, for these technical roles, which is where the majority of these roles come from, is a minimum of three years on the job, working within these products and these tools and working around strategies and figuring out strategies. It takes time. We can't get away from but we still must take those with no experience. We have to. We figured out succession planning in business years ago. For some reason, it's and it's in IT, it's in software. Like, see it, it's normal now, succession planning. Why still do we not get that with cybersecurity? Do you have a story that really just encapsulates this problem that you could tell? I mean, certainly the amount of people that move jobs because of burnout is increase significantly. And we see it now as a part of where does cybersecurity fit into the Great Recession? Well, it fits in that those that were already on the verge of burnout are now fully in burnout. So meaning most people were already stretched thin and not having enough opportunity, not enough people on the team doing the same thing over and over, not a lot of wins, not feeling really great. And then COVID comes and now they got to deal with remote. They've got to deal with more and more attacks than we've ever seen has happened in the last two years and is continuing and ones that are very hurtful. They've gone to 30% higher burnout rate. And so you know, what is burnout if not a clear somebody that's responding to working in an environment that 
doesn't have roles and responsibilities clearly defined where people can understand when they can take time off and how, and be able to take time off and it not feel like everything's going to fall apart. And they have a plan for their career and how they're going to grow. They have time to be with their friends and family enough to not be burnt out. That's not what's been going on for this community. So obviously there is an issue, whether you're on one side or the other, how do we fix it? Yeah, I think that we have to use a common language taxonomy where we're speaking the same language about jobs and careers. And we have to partner with every type of training institute to make sure they're on the same page with the skill sets that we need. And we have to have succession planning. We have to be able to hire those without experience, whether they're coming from school or they're coming because they want to change industries. We have to be able to absorb them. And right now, we're really challenged in that. Now let's take a quick break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Exonius. Liz, we need a podcast ad to get people to check out our new video with Amy Bream. How do we make people want to watch it? I mean, other than her being a kickboxer, a CrossFit athlete, and a total badass that was born with one leg who just partnered with a cybersecurity company, we tell them to go to exonius.com slash Amy Bream and call it a day. Sounds like we just made an ad. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash A-M-Y-B-R-E-A-M. After chatting with Deidre, we knew that there had to be so much more to this story of personnel issues with high rates of burnout and multiple gaps in skills. Does the gap really start here or does it begin somewhere else? Enter Alyssa Miller, Business Information Security Officer at S&P Global Ratings, a self-described hacker, and I guess on so many tech podcasts, we knew that this show would not be complete without bringing her on to talk about her recent TED Talk, which covered the skills gap controversy from the perspective of employer expectations causing a hiring disconnect. I was seeing, like many of us were, these articles in the industry talking about, oh, woe is us, the skills gap, the talent gap, the talent shortage, whatever, you know, a million different names for it. And everyone, I mean, I saw everything from 800,000 unfilled positions to 4 million unfilled positions. And so you're, I'm hearing all this, but then I'm talking to people who are like recent college grads or they're trying to maybe pivot from a different career path. And they're telling me they can't find jobs. They can't get hired. Like they're, they're applying to job after job after job, but they're not getting hired. It's kind of this dissonant story of on one side, I've got, you know, everybody saying we don't have enough people to hire. Our pipelines are empty. On the other side, I got all these people telling me we want jobs in this industry. Why won't you hire us? I started just by doing some research with just some surveys and some other things. And it became really clear really quick. Problems weren't a lack of talent. It, it was a lot of self-inflicted wounds. That was really the focus of the TEDx talk was just, let's look at how our expectations are set for hiring and what we're doing as an industry that's actually creating this hiring disconnect. From your perspective, do you believe that we have the personnel needed to fill all the roles that we're looking for? I don't think we have all. I feel like there's probably still somewhat of a gap there that we can do better in developing talent and things like that. 
But that's actually, again, it's self-inflicted, right? I feel like there's enough people out there who want to be in this industry that if we did the right things, we could fill these roles, we could build a sustainable workforce model, we would have a talent pipeline, just all the stuff that right now we don't have because... We haven't done a good job of building any of it, quite honestly. Our expectations and how we hire have created a really unsustainable model, and so we're just missing out. So we may not have the exact numbers that we need. Like There might still be a little bit of a gap, but I definitely don't think it's anywhere near as significant as anyone's made it out to be. Speaking of self-inflicted wounds, one of the things I didn't even realize is that when someone is great at their job, they get promoted. And in fact, sometimes we promote them out of that technical role that they're so good at and even passionate about. Is that something that you think is also adding to this gap is that we're promoting people out of the jobs that they really were meant to do? I mean, it depends because I see both sides of that too, right? I run into plenty of people who are dying for promotions and can't get them. What I think happens though, honestly, this is my challenge with promotions is I think we promote people who want to get to management because they see that as the next logical progression. But I think for a lot of those people, it's just because there's an absence of any other way to you know grow within their current track. Because I do see a lot of people who get promoted into leadership roles who really don't have a lot of love for what a leader is actually supposed to be doing. And so I think that does contribute to it, maybe in terms of the fact that they, I guess you're taking people away from that who might excel more there. But I think the bigger challenge is when they're not ready to be leaders and they're not in that mindset of actually loving the work of being a leader, I think that ultimately they end up unwittingly contributing to some of the other problems that cause more of these self-inflicted wounds. One of the things that Deidre was talking about was this lack of training, like you're talking about, lack of grooming your own folks, but especially at the entry level. So first, let's talk about what do people actually need from entry level folks, and then we can start talking a little bit about where we go wrong with job recs. So first of all, that's a really complex question, because <laughs> what do they need? Well, what do they need actually versus what do they need to overcome the crappy job wrecks that are there right now, right? Those are two different answers because right now the expectations are overzealous. We expect these people have way too much coming in. I just had a Twitter thread blow up the other day with you know thousands of likes and reshares and stuff because all I said was stop telling people that they need to go into you know, IT or networking or development careers in order to get into security because they don't. What we need is that focus from our employers that, you know what, I can bring in somebody who's, you know, been an electrician working for the power company and they've got a desire to learn. They've got, you know, cybersecurity is something that they're very genuinely interested in. They have some level of aptitude to learn new things And you know what? They actually bring me some really important perspectives from outside the IT world that could be very important, especially if I'm hiring them into a security team that's managing ICS. Yes, it is good to have some background in computers and networking and those things. If you have some of that experience, it's absolutely valuable. But to say that that's a requirement 
is where I kind of, I don't buy into that because we don't see that happen in other industries. We see other industries that have very strong progressions of here's how you move into an entry-level role. Here's how you progress up from that. One of my favorite examples, and I used it in the TEDx talk, is, you know, look at skilled trades. Someone comes out of high school, wants to be, you know, a, a plumber or an electrician or whatever. What do they do? They go and they become an apprentice. Oh, and by the way, they get paid to be an apprentice. That's not free work, right? And then there's a progression up how they move from an apprentice to an electrician to a master electrician. We do it with doctors as well. You know, we look at their residency programs. I realize there's there's trouble in how those are implemented too. But again, it's all recognizing that, you know what, we really can't expect you to learn this from a book. We can't expect you to learn this from doing Try Hack Me or millions of CTFs or whatever. We have to get you in where you're actually exposed to the real world implications of how this technology is getting leveraged, how it's being used, how it's being implemented, and how difficult it can be to deal with it in an enterprise or even just a small business setting. It's not that, oh, you need to go out and you need to get a security plus cert or whatever else. Unfortunately, we get forced into some of that because we see job descriptions where one of the requirements is you have to have a certification. And in a lot of cases, if there's a, or an applicant tracking system on the back end, it'll kick you out immediately if you don't put a certification in there. And so we do see the expectations and that are not aligned well with entry-level roles. What I encourage people to do is look at, okay, if you are doing some self-study, you are doing TriHackMe, you are you know, playing with your own home lab or whatever you're doing, that's great. Do that. Continue to do that if you have the means and the ability, but document that somehow, demonstrate it somehow. And I know I'm not the only one that's been saying this, like, you know, create content, create resources, whatever you can do. Anyone can start a Twitch channel and live stream for free and and save that stuff off. That's all good stuff that you can at least use to demonstrate not just your skills and experience, but also just your, your hunger to because that's what everybody says they're looking for is that hunger. It's a way to demonstrate it. When you think about the entry-level positions, especially the ones that aren't requiring experience before they begin the role, it seems like it's easier for larger corporations to do that because they spread the work around their, their large workforce. But it does seem a little bit harder for startups or smaller companies that you have practitioners that are wearing many hats and they might have a hard time being able to bring along someone that's an apprentice. What piece of advice would you have for the folks that do have the smaller teams that are wearing many hats, but they still want to help train the younger generation? So I would ask them to look at their accounting teams. How many of those accountants were highly skilled enterprise grade accountants when you started your startup? Did you even have an accountant? Who was the first one you hired in? How skilled were they? What did you have before you hired that person in terms of cybersecurity? Probably nothing. So if you had nothing and you brought in somebody to do something, you're already ahead of the game, right? You've already got more than you had before. So what is the problem of bringing them in, giving them the opportunity to learn and grow on the job as opposed to going out and trying to hire somebody that you probably can't afford anyway, some enterprise-grade security architect with 10 or 15 years of experience, you're not going to be able to afford that anyway. 
So go and find that person who you can afford from a salary perspective because they will come in having less experience. So, you know, they should have lower salary expectations than an architect, for instance. Bring them in, invest in them. And then, of course, the fear is, oh, well, we're going to invest money in them and then they're going to be worth too much and leave. Well, how much money did you invest in them initially? How does that investment in training start to shift to their salary and have an actual plan for how you do that? And quite honestly, I mean, Chris, this is the same whether it's enterprise or small business is that's the other component to this, right? So I've worked in a number of programs where I've been able to like build an entry-level talent growth like that. And the challenge always is what happens after they gain, you know, two years of experience and I've trained them up, now they're worth so much more and I can't afford to pay them anymore. So the reality is when you do go out to the market and you're, you're going to do that type of program, one of the things you really have to plan for in that is that rapid salary and compensation acceleration because it's, that's the reality of that world, right? I mean, that, that's not going to change anytime soon, and it's going to be a faster acceleration than you're used to in your other jobs. 3% raises are not going to get it done. You have to have, you have to look at it and understand that someone's going to come in. If they leave your company, they're probably going to get 10, 15, or 20% raises just by leaving. So that's what you have to plan for. And maybe there's different creative ways to do that. Does it have to be base salary necessarily? Obviously, in startups, we do things like, you know, equity grants and such. How can you leverage that to augment it instead of just a single equity grant up front? And instead of just giving, options that they still have to spend money to exercise, what if we just give them RSUs? Give them actual stock. Let it vest over a few years, do things to keep them around, but give them a stake in the game. One last wrap-up question, and we're just going to take it home by going back to the beginning. Do you believe that there is a cybersecurity skills slash personnel gap, and why? I believe there is a gap. I don't believe it is a gap of the number of people. I believe it is a gap in our expectations versus the reality of how you build a sustainable workforce. And this idea that we have to constantly have the highest grade of you know experienced, seasoned professional in every cybersecurity role is absolutely what's killing us right now. And that is the model we've got to move away from. It's not sustainable. It's not even the best approach. It's definitely not productive. And at the end of the day, it's what is creating so many issues. It even, you know, it's killing our everything from budgets to how we build, you know, teams that aren't dysfunctional to just, you know, overall success and diversity of our teams. It affects all of that. With a gap in proper training of skills for employees on one side and the gap in business hiring expectations on the other, the point started to become clear. This problem won't go away on its own, even if we aren't sure where the problem starts. Still, are we sure that there's a gap in skills at all? Andy Ellis, CISO Hall of Fame inductee and current advisory chief information security officer at Orca Security, joined us on this journey with his answer on exactly where he's seen the largest gap yet, leadership, and the team building strategies that subpar leaders put in place. 
So I, I really picked this up actually talking to folks in the FBI because the FBI has a cyber division. They have a hard time hiring people for it. And somebody made the comment. They said, the cyber division is going to go away. And I said, why? He said, we don't have a car division anymore. Every agent is a car agent. And at some point, every agent will be a cyber agent. And that really resonated with me. And as I looked at hiring, I had this realization that most cyber jobs are not cyber jobs at all. They're jobs with the flavor of cyber. So we had the state of the internet security report. One of my favorite things, we write this report. And, you know, most of the people who worked on it were former reporters and journalists that we hired them. Usually they had worked a security beat at some point in their career, but one of them hadn't. Because we could teach them the security flavor of the job much more easily than we could teach them the skills of being a journalist, which is what we needed for that job. On our compliance team, we had digital anthropologists, like people who were coming out of the digital humanities discipline or anthropology. We had librarians, our security architects, half of them. This was the first time they'd worked in security, but they'd worked in life safety. Very similar skill sets, just a different application. There are still, I think, core security jobs. You know, when you want somebody who's going to actually look at source code, I think you need somebody who, you know, has a software engineering background with a very strong security background. You want somebody who's going to really look at how a system will break. That is a very, you know, nuanced set of capabilities that you're going to need to build. But for 90% of the jobs in the security industry, like those are insertion jobs. You can bring somebody from outside and within two years, you won't realize that this is their first security job. I would say that probably a third or more of my team, it was their first security job and nobody knew it. If we take this model that says, look, everybody who comes in has to you know, do DFIR and panes of glass and security operations, and then we're going to promote you out of doing that work to be a manager or a program manager or work in compliance. First of all, we're throwing away a deep technical skill set right. because it's deeper than what you're going to need over in that space. And why do we think you're actually going to be good at that job? Like technical skills are actually the easiest skills to understand if people have them which makes them the easiest to train. People think of non-technical or soft skills. I hate soft skills, but since everybody uses it, you know, I think of it as people and process skills. Those are really hard to teach and really hard to evaluate if people have them. And those are the ones we need more of. And you don't find them as much in security, but you find them everywhere else. I completely agree with that. And the reason why I do is one of the things, I come from a threat intelligence background. Yep. And I always say that threat intelligence is one of the easiest fields to get into, but one of the hardest things to master. You could take someone that has really good research skills, really good communication skills, and turn them into a threat intelligence analyst pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. what I'm seeing in the community right now is that there's this push to go towards more engineering-minded security practices. If everyone started to go into that realm where every security team is pretty much an security engineering team, do you think there would create a bit of a gap because there wouldn't be enough people to fill those specific roles? Or do you think there's something we could do there? But that's a management gap. That's not a, a skills gap. That's you just hired the wrong people. Like my team was one third architecture one-third intelligence, and one-third compliance. Like, that was basically our breakdown. And, you know, we did move people. There were people who moved between those groups. Where did where did we go wrong? Like, where did managers go wrong? Where did CISOs go wrong? And where did the recruiters go wrong when looking for these security engineers or these security professionals? 
So they all went wrong somewhere different. So let me start with the recruiters. The recruiters went wrong in the follow-up to the New Haven firefighter case. And for those not familiar with this, this is a case where the city of New Haven wanted to override the firefighter test to increase diversity. One of the few tests that we actually have that are truly neutral, they wanted to overrule it because they didn't like the, the disparate impact. Turns out it's very hard to have both a fair test and one that doesn't have disparate impact when there's so much disparate inputs into a system. And certainly when you're measuring on small sample sizes, there's no way not to have disparate impact just with you know, random luck from time to time. Um, but what happens out of that is the advice that is given to recruiting teams is to maximize the number of neutral tests, which is actually very weird to me because the whole New Haven case didn't hinge on the neutral test problem. The neutral tests were actually there. But to a recruiter, a neutral test is things like, do you have a degree? Do you have N years of experience with X technology? And so that's what recruiters are often doing is they're just filtering on the most requirements that they possibly can. Well, we also know from a bunch of other studies that the more requirements you put onto a job, the more people from underrepresented groups are going to turn away from applying for the job. We can talk about why that is. There's, I think, a lot of different reasons. I don't think we truly understand as much about why as we think we do, but that's just a known effect. Now, what happens is all you have to do is get past the recruiter. So the recruiter can't really tell if you have seven years of experience with X technology. They're just going to look and see, well, do you have X technology somewhere on your resume? And do you have seven years of experience on your resume? And if so, great, we're golden. The fact that that technology only came out three years ago, they totally miss it. And then we see that, you know, we see that you put out a in a job requirement for, you know, I need someone with two years of experience with this technology as an engineer. And when the recruiting team and the compensation team say, oh, you want to have a senior engineer, we need to bump that from two years to four years. You're like, but the technology has only been out for two years. I literally wanted the, the one cutting edge person. And a senior engineer isn't going to somehow be a time traveler. So they add more and more of these on. Then there's a problem that on the security side, people don't really understand how to hire a team. I don't know if either of you love football, but I'm a huge football fan. I'm a Patriots fan. I'm sorry for those people who are offended by it. <laughs> well, and right now we have this really interesting dilemma here in New England, like the dilemma that people either would like to have or not like to have. We don't know who the quarterback's going to be. Maybe we'll know by the time this one airs. Right. But we have two entirely different quarterback candidates. Right, We've got Cam Newton and Mac Jones, and literally there is like nothing that these two guys have in common, except that their uniform number starts with one. Like mm -hmm. that's basically the only thing they've got in common. You know, one of them is a you know, stand up pocket passer. The other guy is mobile and fast on his feet. Like we're going to run completely different offenses with these guys. Imagine if I was trying to hire a quarterback, that, what job description could I write that both of them would work for? What most companies do is basically would have said, oh, Tom Brady has left. Let us write a job description for Tom Brady, except 20 years younger. Right. You know, I'll tell you, first of all, Tom Brady 20 years ago did not look like Tom Brady today. So right. he himself would not have gone with that. But you narrow down your focus. Someone leaves and you want to find a specific person rather than saying, what are the like five people I could find, any of whom would make my team better? That was a trick we would sometimes do. We'd actually literally open up five requisitions. The recruiting team was not always a fan of the strategy. And we would run them in parallel and we'd say, oh, look, we've got a great candidate on track two. We're going to go with that and we're going to close down the other four positions. 
they didn't always love that I was doing it because it was more work, but I got great people out of it. And sometimes people we didn't expect. And then the other thing we sometimes do is we write all of the desired skills we would like for our whole team, but then we put them onto one job description. So instead of saying you are part of a team that will you know, have mastered these 12 technologies, we say we want you to have had as many of those 12 as possible. And whereas you who wrote it were thinking, if you just walked in with one of those, I would be happy. That's not how the person reads it. Let's talk about what the CISO is often doing wrong. First of all, the CISO is often hands-off, right? They're letting people operate this broken process without challenging it and saying, hey, what are we doing differently? They're not building diversity into their pipeline. When I hired, some of my hiring was entirely our intern pool. Some of our hiring was through a retraining program that we called the Akamai Technical Academy, where we were taking people who'd been either out of the career field for a few years, maybe raising a family, or had gotten a degree and then realized, well, it's a technical degree, but in a discipline I don't want to work in. And so we would literally, we'd retrain them, we'd pay them to go through a six-month training program, and then a six-month functionally an internship, and then we would offer them a job. But we paid them that whole time. But what it let me do was say, look, I'm going to keep hiring out of both of those pools. And then we're also going to go out onto the career market and look for people who seem interesting, who have great skills, maybe in a discipline we don't use today, and figure out how we're going to use them. And so you, the CISO, have to provide that leadership. And that's one thing I've always liked about you, Andy, is that you really focus on the philosophy of leadership and yep. really thinking intelligently about how do we solve tough problems. I'd love to hear, like, what are some of your major tenets for leadership that you go by today? So I think the number one tenant is that leadership is about investing in your people. And that's a little different from what people sometimes think about servant leadership, which is serving your people. It is about at every opportunity, how do you input resources into your staff to make them better? You're going to get more work out of them. You're going to make them feel taken care of. Like you get all the benefits people mostly think about leadership. But leadership is about investment. And so what do you need to do to invest in your people? And then you just run that against everything you do because there's not one panacea. It's not like you say, oh, I have an epiphany. I'm going to do this one thing and I will be an amazing leader. Instead, you have to basically do everything 1% better. So think about performance reviews. Like you, you two have done performance reviews, I assume, at some point in your career. So many. Course, right? <laughs> and how often do you do them? Every year. Once a year? Once a year. And as somebody who's received one, now don't be a manager, be the person receiving one. Is the purpose of that performance review really to justify the bonus you're getting or maybe to justify a paper trail to fire you in the future? Supposedly. Right? Do you get any other benefit out of the performance review? Maybe some feedback. Yeah, maybe some feedback. Once a year, maybe some feedback is not leadership. Like performance management is an ongoing investment if you surprise somebody at a performance review, they're going to be like, wait, you're giving me feedback now on something I did wrong nine months ago? That's horrible feedback. Think about photography. So if you think back to before the smartphone, if you want to be a professional photographer, you would take a picture and then you'd have to go develop it. And so by the time you would get feedback on how bad your picture was or how good it was, a month might have passed. And you got to remember, well, what was I thinking? What did I do? How do I get better? But now when you take pictures with a smartphone, you take the picture and you're immediately like, oh, hey, my finger was over the lens. Mm -hmm. Or, yep. God, that lighting is awful. The person is backlit and I can't see their face. You are learning instantaneously. 
what you did wrong and what you can do better. And that's what performance management should be. Performance management is not about finding the people who aren't good and getting rid of them. Performance management is about finding all of the people and helping them be better. And just doing that a little bit every day. These are some really good lessons. I think that there is so much to unpack here. And, you know, when I'm thinking about all of this, I'm thinking, you know, if so, if I had a leader like this in my life, like right now during COVID, this digital transformation and work from home, I'd probably be one of the hottest people on the job market. There'd be all these companies that are trying to steal me away from Andy. What are your philosophies on keeping the talent after you invest, you know, these six-month training programs, these two-year ramp-ups? How do you keep the talent after they've acquired the skills and the knowledge and they already have these auxiliary skills that they can use in other areas too? The biggest benefit I had is they wanted to work for me and they wanted to work with the people who were in that community. My goal wasn't to say, look, I'm going to overpay you so that nobody can possibly hire you away. In fact, I would encourage people to go look, right? I want them to know what's on the outside, partly so they can plan for their next three jobs. But when they discover that there aren't a lot of great leaders out there, how many people have as an attitude, this was literally, we told people, we said, look, the next four years of output from you is more important than the next four weeks, So if you just needed to take four weeks off for any reason, we'll figure out how to make it work. But if you're not feeling well today, go home. Do you need a mental health day? Go home. Go take care of yourself right now. That's on us to figure out how to work around that. Because I care more that you're going to keep showing up and you're going to be producing at a high level for a long time. If the rest of the industry copied that, then I would have worried about people stealing my folks away. But (laughs) this attitude wasn't catching on. But here was the the stunning thing, was the 15 months before I left Akamai, I didn't have a single person leave my organization. Not one. 94 people, zero turnover, 15 months. Wow. Like, it speaks for itself. Think about how much time and energy you spend on turnover, hiring new people, getting them up to speed. Like, that's expensive. I didn't have that cost at all. My people were basically like 20% more effective than any comparable team just because we weren't turning anyone over. Andy, there's someone that's listening to this podcast and either they've dealt with bad leaders in the past or them themselves, they feel like there are gaps in their leadership ability and they want to take it to that next level. They want to give back to the community and to their teams. On that leadership journey, what is that one piece of advice that you would have for everybody out there? It's the same piece. It's, it's just coming from different angles. So one is a piece of humility. The lesson that you think you learned might not be the lesson that other people need to hear. The flip side of that is test and refine your ideas. Find somebody that you can trust and talk to and talk to them. And then when they tell you you're full of it, listen to them. Because our job as a communicator who wants to give back and share these lessons is to recognize that if somebody didn't hear the lesson, it's our fault as the communicator. So it seems like as we dig into our research and speak with all of the experts, this situation is turning out to be a little more complicated than we originally thought. And for you and I, it seems like this is a mix of situations, decisions, and actions that have cultivated the environment that we operate in today. The beautiful thing, Ron, is that this conversation doesn't end here. Everyone can stay tuned for the next episode of this segment as we're about to get real with a serial CISO and a good friend of ours that has hired and led more than his fair share of practitioners. And the beautiful part, 
you will get to see this conversation if you so choose. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel and our show notes or follow us on LinkedIn to see what's happening live. Rather wait for the audio, we got them covered here too. On the skills gap situation, check out the report that we've added to the show notes. And again, jump on the Hacker Valley Media LinkedIn and YouTube along with our other social media pages and let us know your thoughts. But remember, although we are technically divided, we are all on the same team.